And so I just had this training day in and day out of working on my mind, working on my body physically, working on my swing technique that all required me to be able to look back at myself and make judgments. And it's just such an invaluable skill that I draw on all the time. Welcome to Rise Leaders Radio. This podcast focuses on exemplary leadership, the type of leadership that brings about positive, meaningful change in places that matter. We explore how these leaders make things happen and the lessons they learned along the way. I'm your host, Leanne Mallory. I knew that there must be an interesting story behind Christian Chernock when I found out that while he was building his residential development business, he also finished a master's degree in transpersonal psychology at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. And all this came on the heels of a pivot from a professional golf career as a result of a back injury. Take a moment to let that sink in. He now owns and operates Christian Chernock Properties, which is a design-build firm focused on the revitalization of historic and conservation districts just outside of downtown Dallas. His intellect and focus on sustainable design push the edges and push some buttons too. His significant athletic training and ability to commit himself to hard work continue to serve him well. Here's what to listen for in the interview. Listen for how Christian navigated a critical transition in his life, one where he was forced to change the trajectory of his career, the importance of finding a teacher and engaging in deliberate practice, how to break big goals and visions into manageable milestones, and holding a vision of a community and a built world that will be a marker of good, well-planned design a hundred years from now. This was a really informative interview, and I've included several links to many of the topics that we discussed in case you're interested in exploring further. Let's head over to the interview now. So I want to go ahead and get us started here and ask you, Christian, to just tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm originally from Connecticut. I came to Dallas when I was 18 to go to school. I came here on a golf scholarship and when I graduated, I played golf, professional golf for about five years and uh, had to get out of golf because of complications with a back condition that I had, have still. And then I've been in the real estate world working for myself. I'm a one-man band, so to speak, in real <laughs> estate uh, for the past 19 years about. And you know, I live in North Oak Cliff for probably 17 years, 18 years, and uh, just raising my 10-year-old and doing my little projects here in the neighborhood. Well, you mentioned this transition. And when I think about you, there's a lot of transitions in your life, but this one was really pivotal. Golf was no longer part of your future. You know, we all face transitions in life where we're just kind of faced with a clean slate. And you were faced with that. And I think you have a really great way of talking about how you dealt with it. So why don't we just start there? So going back to high school, I was diagnosed with a back condition called spondylolisthesis. It's a fracture on my lower back. And so it was 
something that I'd known about for a long time that always was kind of a lingering issue in my both my amateur career and my professional career. And then ultimately, I started to do more damage in that area of my back. And I was ultimately forced to stop playing golf. And so it was one of those sort of markers in my life of a really difficult, difficult transition. I think everybody can look back on their lives of those one, two, three times where they were just really pushed to their limits. The challenge for me was from the time I was probably five, four, five, six years old, I was known as a Christian Chernock, the athlete. And growing up, I paid six or seven sports, ultimately chose to pursue golf. And my identity was deeply wrapped into being an athlete. And to have to walk away from that at the age of 28, my late 20s, it was really had an existential quality to it, existential angst of just like waking up every day and that's all gone. And it's who am I? What am I? What am I doing in the world? What's my place? What's my future? Just sort of suspended. I used to liken it like when you're jumping on like a trampoline, you get to the top and that like you're stomach comes up and you're just kind of like on your way down. I felt like I was stuck in that spot for months. I would just kind of wake up with just anxiety. And so I actually went and got professional help to kind of help me through this transition. And when you say professional help, you mean like you went to a, I a went counselor? I went to a counselor. Yeah, I saw a mm-hmm. woman called Alice Tallwater Frazier here in Dallas and just a brilliant, lovely woman who had just amazing wisdom. And she just, I'd reached out to her because I needed help navigating through it all. I needed a sounding board that was different than my parents, different than my golf coach, you know, somebody that was just sort of independent and who was a professional, not just a good friend, somebody that could really have the skills to help me work through this. She also lined up with just, you know, she was at the time she was going through a program, a creation spirituality program at Naropa. I was familiar with Naropa. We had some similar sort of interests in development and, and uh, so I, it was just a great fit. So anyways, that's what I did. I, I just worked through it. I had enough, I think, self-awareness to realize how, how difficult of a transition I was in. And uh, that was useful. Had I been maybe a little bit younger and didn't maybe have the insight to kind of witness what was happening, it could have gone a lot of other ways. It's, it's very easy to want to reach out to drugs or alcohol or any other sort of kind of abusive behavior mm-hmm. to kind of fill that void or numb that unfamiliar anxiety. And I just was really cognizant of like, okay, I just, you know, I need professionals. <laughs> and so that's what I did. So I started working on that. It's like, okay, what am I going to do now with the rest of my life? And so the natural fit was for me to just get, take a teaching position. So at the time I was, I was actually, I had to rehab my back to try to come back. I was, I tore the disc lining. I was about to herniate discs. I already had a fracture and in my lower back on L5S1. And so I, there's all this sort of the medical aspect of it. Mm-hmm. At the time I was I was rehabbing my back and I started teaching for my coach at the time who was Hank Haney. And people in the golf world will know that name, but Hank is you know arguably one of the all-time greats in his profession, worked with people like Mark O'Meara and, and taught you know coach Tiger Woods when he was number one in the world uh, for many years. And so Hank was a huge influence in my life in my going through college golf, he ultimately was my college 
coach. Uh, he took the SMU coaching position my senior year and then was really instrumental in my early 20s, just as sort of almost like a, definitely a mentor, but you know, and my technical coach as well. Christian, I want to stop you here. And you mentioned that you had, you were glad that you had the self-awareness that you needed to reach out for someone other than just your parents or your friends or your golf coach. Where did that self-awareness come from? Was this part of your coaching in athletics? I think that feels like a key piece that a lot of people don't have that self-awareness. So where did that come from? When I was a freshman at SMU, there was a guy by the name of David Esterbrook. We used to call him Psycho Dave. And he was a psychologist <laughs> that was, he was doing his PhD, PhD dissertation on and using our team as a subject matter. He's a sports psychologist. And he and I really hit it off. And he started teaching me things about sports psychology and just critical techniques. You know, like one would be, you know, at the beginning of the the, the golf round, I'd put uh, 10 tees in my left hand, my left pocket. And every time I had a negative thought, I would remove one tee from my po- my left pocket and put it in my right pocket. And at the end of the round, I would notice how many tees of negative thoughts I had. And so that was just a little technique of witnessing, of hmm. witnessing my own behavior. And that was a critical aspect of sports psychology. It was also, even the technical aspects of golf were, were you watch yourself on video almost every day when you're working on your swing. So you are taking a third party perspective on your own swing. You're witnessing your swing on video. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just had this training day in and day out of working on my mind, working on my body physically, working on my swing technique that all required me to be able to look back at myself and make judgments. And that was, it's just such an invaluable skill that I draw on all the time. And I kept pushing the boundaries of that. When I, I really took to sports psychology, when I got out of school and was just pursuing a professional golf career, I traveled in Asia. I played on the Asian tour, but I used to travel with textbooks and read about psychology and started to get interested in Eastern thought, started to learn about like meditation. I was interested, introduced to meditation. And I realized very quickly, I'm like, oh, this is just what I've been doing, witnessing my own mind, witnessing you. Like I used to do breathing as I was coming down the last few holes of a golf tournament, I would focus on my breath to be more, you know, present in the moment and not be so outcome oriented, but become, you know, process oriented. So to manage the pressure of the situation, whether I was trying to win a tournament or finish off a really good round. And so I realized that there was a tremendous amount of overlap with sports psychology and practices of meditation. And so I just kept deepening my own understanding of that throughout my 20s. I want to hear these same techniques now are coming into the business world thank goodness. And the idea of well-being, being focusing on the breath, all of that is really up in the business world right now. And as we continue our conversation, I'm really curious about how you're applying this today in a non-athletic 
context, mm-hmm. you know, like, how do you do this uh, today? And I know that your world is really challenging. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to hear how you're making that transition. We got to this part of the conversation here, because I had asked you, how did you develop that sense of awareness? And so it didn't just it wasn't something that naturally happened to you, you built that over time as part of your athletic career. So I think it's important to know it just doesn't just show up. Yeah. You had some practice with that. And that led you to know that you were going to need help outside of friends, your mom and dad, as you were starting with a blank slate now with the rest of your life. How is it that you moved from uh, professional golf to <laughs> real estate. I yeah. mean, that there's that's a big jump. And I don't know, yeah. in my mind, it was like, oh, you went one right from one thing to another. But I would suspect there was some a, a period of time in there, in between. The immediate transition was I was, while I was rehabbing my back and trying to get back to golf. And I was working for Hank as a golf instructor. And I was, you know, I was in lessons and I would just be looking at my watch going, you know, when's this going to be over? When's this, not, you know? And I realized, okay, this isn't going to work. And so I reached out to Hank and I said, Hank, do you have anything else that I can do? And he's like, well, what else do you know how to do? And I said, let me run your your cruise on your renovation. He was actually renovating hmm. some of the, they were called bunkhouses, where he would have out-of-town guests come and stay and they need to be renovated. And he had like four guys. And he's like, how do you know how to do that? And I was like, don't worry about it. I just, I know how to do it. And so that's what I did. I took his crews and we started renovating bunkhouses. What he didn't know is that going all the way back to high school, I had a very deep interest in design. And my school had a very good and accelerated program in design. Academics really weren't my thing, but this was. And this is really where I excelled. And I almost went to school for architecture. I wanted to continue that, but I also had the golf thing and back then dating myself here, architecture was still done on a drafting table. And so you actually couldn't play collegiate golf because it was a two semester sport and you traveled three days at a time. You were away from your drafting lab. So there was no way to actually do both because they weren't drafting wasn't done on the computer yet. So I ultimately chose the golf path even going all the way back to when I was five and six years old. I mean, I had kind of two speeds. I was either outside playing a sport or I was inside playing with Legos or Lincoln Logs or building (laughs) something. I mean, and my parents would tell me stories. They're like, you would be for two hours at the age of five or six, you know, where kids can't sit still, you know, usually for longer than 20 minutes, just entrenched in, in the world of, of building. And I would, you know, I would master all of the the Legos and then I would just improv and I would mix my sets and build these huge creations of structures. And so it's definitely something that I showed up with. Uh, I didn't choose, choose it. It chose me. Huh. And so, but I also had the whole athletics thing. And so I, I, that's just sort of my path went down the road of golf. But when golf was kind of coming to an end, in one sense, I looked out, I said, okay, what do I want to do with my life now? And I felt like I really could do anything. I had, you know, great support from friends, great support from my family. I had a college education. I felt confident that I, you know, I had a good work ethic. I could really just put my mind to anything. And when I looked out, I just felt like, God, I could do anything I want. And then when I realized 
if I'm going to be true to like really things that I'm passionate about, that lens just shrank very quickly. Hmm. And I was like, there's not a lot I can do if I want to have a really deep, fulfilling life. And I realized it just in real time when I was teaching golf, by all accounts, you would think, oh, okay, you're not going to be a professional golfer. There's tons of connections and you have a ton ton of knowledge. Like you just choose another uh, way to fit in into the golf world. And I was teaching golf and I I just, it wasn't me. It was, you know, it wasn't me. I just, it was like watching paint dry. It was just, (laughs) just, I wanted, I just didn't want to teach people, you know, hour in, hour out. And so then it was like, okay, what are some of the clues or what are some of the techniques that, you know, with the help of Alice and through my own research, but one of the things I would really key on, key in on is timeless awareness. You know, there's a couple different labels for this, but what activity do you do where time just escapes you and where you forget to eat lunch or you forget to call back or, you know, four hours went by and it felt like 30 minutes. And what created timeless awareness for me was building was constructing and working with my hands. And that went all the way back to when I was five building with Legos. And I remember there was times in high school where I, you know, you have take home projects and there were scaled models and you would have to build with these things. And my father would wake up in the middle of the night and come out in the kitchen. He's like, what are you doing? And I'd be like, <laughs> just working on my project for school. He's like, it's 4.30 in the morning. And I was like, oh, I didn't know. You know, I had to get up for school in two hours. Like, <laughs> I just didn't even know. And so that is, that's gold. That right there is like in telling you something. I agree. When I'm working with people on, we would say, call it purpose work or whatever, that is a key question. It's like, where do you get lost? Where do you lose all sense of time? And you get so absorbed that you, hours can pass and you don't even know. So one of the things I recognize is that I actually live in a country that allows for this, that allows me to choose my passion. And I also grew up with parents that supported me at every, at every stage and also allowed me, you know, allowed me to explore my passions. I recognize that's not a a reality for everybody, but having said that, it just means people need to really kind of raise their game and create a transition plan if they're trying to get out of what they're doing and get to something that they're passionate about. That transition plan just needs to be thought through that much more. And the other thing that I also balance all of this with about choosing your passions as your primary career is also meshing in the balance of lifestyle design. That was one thing that I spent a lot of time thinking about is like, what kind of lifestyle do I want to to live? And then can this passion support that? Is this something that you came up with yourself or did lifestyle design, where, where did that come from? Lifestyle design is sort of a popular term now, mm-hmm. but it's something that I've thought about for a long time, uh-huh. um, just never under that label. If somebody Google search lifestyle design, there's lots of things out there that, at least the things that I mm-hmm. listen to, it's how do you design the habitat of your life hmm. for maximum enjoyment, for maximum gratitude, for really the best version of yourself. And there's different techniques that I would 
that I would do. Like one was just sort of this mental game I would play with myself where I was like, okay, Christian Chernock's going to be, who's the movie character of Christian Chernock? Like what Mm -hmm. is the coolest, best version of me? Like where would I live? What kind of friends would I have? What kind of food would I eat? What kind of clothes would I wear? What books would I read? Like design that person down to every level of detail. What kind of color nail polish would I have? Like how would I wear (laughs) my hair? What would my glass, like then just go become that person. Create the best version of yourself and then create a plan to go become that person. And I just don't know any other way to create the most fulfilling life that you can have. The great leveler now is the internet. Mm. Like growing up, I don't even know where I would have gone to look and research. I mean, you go to the library, I guess, but now the greatest thing about the internet is, you know, you can ask it any question, but it, it, there's anonymity. You don't have to feel embarrassed about not knowing something. You can just Mm. look it up. I can't tell you how many times in real estate I will be in a meeting and an architect or an engineer will say a word. And I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about. I will go look that up in the (laughs) next meeting. I'm up to speed. You know what I mean? Like that. And I spend, you know, I, I download at night, I download videos onto my phone. And during the day, when I have free time in my car, I listen and I'm in a perpetual state of learning everything and anything I want to know. Going all the way back to the time where I was transitioning out of golf, I was using Alice. I was using things on the internet. I was just trying to attack it from all different levels. I also recognize that I have some innate things that I showed up with that are probably the, my greatest assets. And one is I just kind of showed up with feeling like I could do things, mm. just sort of a sense of confidence. My mother tells stories about when we were young and my sister and I and my cousins, like one, we went, we went ice skating once and all the kids were going ice skating for the first time on a pond in our neighborhood. And there's probably 50 or 60 other people out on the, on the pond and everybody l- laces up their skates. And they said, you could see each person's personality about how they approach this activity. <laughs> one of my, one of my cousins was over there, like with their tip of their ice skate to make sure the ice was solid. You know, I put my skates on, I, start running as if I knew how to run in blades, <laughs> jump on the ice. Just, there was just never even occurred to me. I wouldn't be able to do it like the 50 people that were already out there. As soon as I hit the <laughs> ice, arms fell, flailing, legs flailing, I wipe out and I'm like, whoa, didn't see <laughs> that right. coming. And I just got back up, got my bearings, started looking around to see how other people were doing it. And then took it from there. (laughs) That's kind of how I go through life is just how hard can it be? Now that shows me, I don't know what that is, but that shows me. And so I play on that strength Mm. that everybody is, is shows up with their strengths and just play to them. But you have to have that self-awareness about it. Like, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Have, have a realistic understanding of where you fall short and try to navigate it where you're playing to your strengths and not those weaknesses. You know, and I think that one of the areas where people don't have that awareness is that sometimes strengths are so, it's like breathing. We don't even realize that we came into the world with it because it's just so natural. Agreed. But you, you know, looking back now, it's like, oh, I was always kind of this way. I was 
I would just get out and try things and then I would make my mistake. I'd pick myself back up and learn. And we all have that. Yours happens to be that sense of get out and try it and just Mm -hmm. that sense of confidence. But we all have that something. Absolutely. Christian, I want to transition to your way of breaking down a big project. And I think you learned it in golf, maybe from Hank or maybe Psycho Dave. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure who taught you. But you're using that same kind of breaking things down in your professional world in in real estate. Can Mm -hmm. you talk about that? Yeah. So that was something I learned from Hank. I remember Hank saying once, I don't really have better eyes than another teacher, or I can't see things that they can't see. He said, where I am better than other teachers is I can create a plan. And Mm -hmm. I know what to fix. And I know what comes after that. And I know what comes after that. And I know what comes after that. And he said, when I give, you know, when I give a lesson, I need to be able to go immediately to the heart to get a result. And he, along with Psycho Dave, Psycho Dave taught me a lot of techniques around goal being you know, goal orientation. There's, there's, you know, and anybody could look these, these up. There's plenty of information out there. But it, it started with a conversation that we had over dinner. And Dave, Psycho Dave asked me, he said, what are just some crazy things that you would want for your life? long-term kind of pie-in-the-sky goals. At the time, I thought owning a restaurant and a bar would be really amazing. So I said that. PGA Tour. thought I'd like to, to be a professional golfer, possibly. Threw that out there. So start sort of throwing out these. It could be whatever. It could be something that you've, you know, you've never told anyone. And you continue to sort of refine that with a little bit of you know lifestyle design. It's like, okay, what would that lifestyle look? What kind of income would that provide? What kind of time commitment would that provide? And you say, is that really something you could foresee for yourself? And you kind of hone in on, on what that goal is. And then from there, it's a series of creating midterm goals down to short-term goals, down to daily goals, down to hourly hmm. and minutes. Now, that's a bit much probably for a lot of people, but that's how it was structured for me in golf. And what Dave did was he gave me worksheets where he said, I want you to go through the day and record all the times when you have free time. So I would actually, I did this for like a week. One of the things I always reported was I don't have enough time. I'm stressed. I've got to get the golf practice. We've got 530 workouts in the morning. I've got class, you know. What he showed me was I've got 15 minutes here. I got 10 minutes there. I got 30 minutes here. What he tried to do, he said, I want you to structure your day so you consolidate that free time into one one block so it can mm. be a decompression time. And so that was really helpful. If I had 10 minutes, I got my homework out instead of just sat there. So that was useful for just structuring your time. So let's say my, my goal was I want to play the PGA Tour. Well, in order to play the PGA Tour, I'm probably going to have to play a junior tour to that. In order to do that, I'm going to need to be a top amateur and top collegiate player to even have the skills to, to go to those tour schools and qualify. Well, how do I become a top? You know, what are the markers for that? Well, winning a tournament, becoming an All-American. Okay, how would I become an All-American? I would need to win a tournament. Before you win a tournament, you probably need to finish top five. You're not going to go from 30th place to, to winning. Typically doesn't happen. <laughs> so before I finish top five, I'll probably need to, to have considerable amount of top tens and before the top tens and on and on. What, what's keeping me from regularly finishing the top 10? 
well, my driving isn't that good. And, you know, I'm not hitting my five foot putts very well. So, okay. So when you go to the golf course today, you need to hit X amount of drivers. Why am I not hitting my driver? Well, I need to schedule a lesson with Hank. I need to get instruction there. And it broke down all the way to like, for the next 15 minutes, I'm hitting five foot putts. And for the 15 minutes after that, I'm hitting another bunch of five foot putts because that's my (laughs) weak spot. You know what I mean? But you would block it out. The brilliance of it all was when I sat there and envisioned my future as a professional golfer, it was overwhelming. I just didn't really know. There was a detachment. I'm a decent college player and those are the best at what they do in the world. But by breaking out goals, there was actually a actionable plan that is very reasonable and very doable. You're like, I can hit putts for five minutes. I could finish in the top 20 at a tournament. And if I did that, I could see how I could finish top 10. And if I did that, I could see how I could finish five and I could see how I could win. I mean, you start to piece it all together. You're like, yeah, this is actually doable. And the other brilliant part about it is all I have to do tomorrow is wake up and just look at my schedule and just do it. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to be overwhelmed by any, I just, I just got to go hit those putts. What I would add in there too, is that you had a coach. So this is one of the myths of practice that if you just do X number, there's a, you know, there's a story out there about 10,000 reps. So if you just do 10,000 reps, you'll get better, but not if you're doing 10,000 reps the wrong way. That's right. So having someone watching you, giving you feedback, showing you maybe the micro corrections that you need to be making Mm -hmm. in your strokes is invaluable, or you just keep practicing the wrong way to do it. Yeah, I do. I just want to say on that, you know, in sports, choosing that coach is a critical decision. And there's sort of a good way and a bad way to do it. The way I approached it was going to go out, see what the options are, do research on, on their track record, see the type of method they teach. And once I chose my coach, I was going to give myself over to them for an allotted time. And I gave it a year and a half. I thought that was enough time to see results. It takes a while in golf. The worst thing is, is if you choose a teacher and then you interject things that you think you know, you interject things that you heard from Mm. another teacher, it gets in the way of letting that teacher do their craft. And you end up undermining what you're after most, which is improvement. And I saw that time and time again, where guys would go, they'd get a little bit of results, they felt good, but then they, the results would dip. And then they say, yeah, maybe they start second guessing their teacher. And then they're listening to somebody else on the driving range. I just never thought it was a great way to go. And then, you know, at the end of that year and a half, like if it just, I wasn't seeing noticeable improvement, you just walk away and try somebody, something else mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with no blame or anything. You know, I chose them, they didn't choose me. And I think that is, that's a critical component to that student teacher relationship and life coach, you know, and I think life coaches are super valuable, but do your research, don't take the decision lightly, and then commit to an allotted time frame that you think is reasonable to see a result and then don't get in the way. So how did you make the transition? So you had all this great foundation because of how you had approached becoming a pro golfer, you know, becoming elite in that world. Then you had a pivot, you turned your attention to real estate and development. And it seems to me that you basically used the same format 
mm-hmm. in building your business. So talk about that, how you kind of yeah. see the future or have built yourself to your current place in the future that you see. So coming out of golf, I worked for Hank doing those renovations. So I was learning skills there. I also started to, while I was rehabbing my back, I did work with Habitat for Humanity and I was donating three three days a week and then became a project crew chief for them and you know learned more of, of home building there. And then eventually I was renting, I lived in a house that I rented out rooms to guys in the golf business. So eventually I took some savings from golf and I bought a house did some research on which neighborhood I thought I might want to set up shop and do a couple projects in. I chose North Oak Cliff, Kessler Park area. And that was it. I, I remember like I would, Hank had guys that worked for them and I would ask them to teach me. I said, Hey, on Sunday, if I pay you, will you, if I came and picked you up, will you come down and teach me how to, uh, what's called sweating pipes? You know, this copper piping was plumbing that they would teach you how to solder the pipes together. And so I would be <laughs> up in the attic learning how to put plumbing pipes together through some of Hank's workers. And I, I was a hands-on, like I laid the tile myself. I put the cabinets in. I did all of the things that you didn't technically need licensing for, like electrician, electrical work. So that's how I started, very hands-on. And I did a renovation and I moved into that house and I rented out two rooms and it was on an oversized lot that I subdivided and I did my first new construction. And then at the time, I actually went to a graduate program. I, was, I went and got a, um, an online program at Naropa in transpersonal psychology. So I was doing, <laughs> which is sort of a whole separate. I was going to say, because that is, that's how you get to be a great <laughs> right, right. developer. <laughs> There's, I can talk more how that comes into the picture. But I would literally be typing papers and doing my work, looking through the window and I'd run out, you know, next door and be like, ah, you know, don't put, don't paint on the foundation. (laughs) Like, you know, was GCing this project while I was in, in graduate school and thinking that I wanted to get into real estate, but doing some projects and figuring it all out. That was a SIPs paneled house. I was learning about green building. I was learning about sustainability. I'd done some integral sustainability training just kind of figuring it all out. And so one went to two, and then I did two new constructions after that. My particular area of interest was in green building and sustainability. Those projects were, you know, what would be considered a a green built house. And that was it. And so I was, uh, one went to two and two went to three. I would keep lease properties. And then I would also do new construction sales just to have money to live on. And so I was kind of doing both of those paths where I'd have lease properties and then do new construction sales. That was it. Just trying to learn as much as I could. A lot of hands-on. For 10 years, Leanne, I worked probably six and a half days a week. Mm. And I would take half a Sunday off. And Sunday morning, I would drive my projects and I had a lanyard with a voice recorder on it. And I would just go through each of my projects and I would record what I needed to bring from home, what I needed to buyer or order and what needed to get done. And then I would go home and I would transcribe that onto paper and wake up and, you know, know exactly what had to be loaded up onto my truck, what had to, I had to go purchase and what needed to get done for the workers. And I would get up around 6.30. I would go to the project sites. I would open them up. I, we would do the work sometimes. I mean, almost every day I'd have my own tool belt on kind of doing things. And then um, I come home at six, I would eat dinner. And then 
right after dinner until midnight, I would go and do bookkeeping and set the schedule and order and do everything, get up the next day and do it. I did that for better part of a decade and which was a, a schedule that most people would just find like insane. Like now you have to understand when I, <laughs> when I went to college, I was lazy just sort of your average American kid, you know, like not, didn't, this, that wasn't something that what I was born with. The two dominant male figures in, in my life were my father and my grandfather. And they were both incredibly hardworking, like just honest, hardworking men. And witnessing that, I realize now how powerful that was. Mm. And I remember Hank asking me on the way back from our very first golf tournament. He says, Christian, let me ask you a question. He says, do you think you're a hard worker? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> the fact that you're asking me that tells me that I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> What's the right yeah. answer? <laughs> so he said, well, let me ask you, he said, and I don't, you don't have to answer this now. He said, would you be interested in working hard for 30 days? When I say working hard, he's like, like Hank Haney working hard. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, okay. And in my mind, I'm already knowing, okay, I got, I got, I mean, you got to do it. You know, he's asking you Monday morning, I go back, I say, Hank, I'm in. And so he created a program for me. And he said, he said, not everybody likes working hard, but one of the things he says, I don't think you recognize what's possible. It's like when you play a sport and you just try and you put as much effort and heart into the game and you leave it all out on the field. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I go through life is just I leave it all out on the field. And it doesn't matter if we're figuring out how to caulk trim, we are going to do it as best we can. And we're just going to leave it all out on the field <laughs> with that caulk joint. You know, I mean, it's just, it's down to every single detail. I just, I'm a really hard trier. Biggest takeaway I took with my 10 years with Hank as a mentor is taking away the, the, the hard work and the work ethic. He taught me how to work hard. He did it in a way where there wasn't burnout. He said, you don't wake up one day and just say, I'm a hard worker now. It's a skill you develop over time. And that was a huge distinction and useful distinction for me. And what he did was build my capacity over time such that I didn't even know it was happening. We hosted NCAAs um, my senior year and prepping for NCAAs, we were doing, you know, 12 hour days of practice. And he said, Hey, do you guys remember? And one of the team meetings said, do you remember the first week of practice, what we were doing on the weekends? And we're like, yeah, we would do an hour and a half in the morning. And we come back in the afternoon for an hour. He said, what do you guys do on the weekends now? And we're like, we do both days, 12 hours. And everybody was just sitting there looking <sighs> at each other going, didn't even know that happened. <laughs> what he did through that entire year was build the team's capacity without the team even knowing it. The thing that I always appreciated about him and the thing that I appreciate are about just great teachers in general is they're often working their magic without you even knowing. You just need to trust it. If they've got the credentials and they've proven it with other people, just kind of shut up and get out of the way because they're doing things that you don't even know. One of the reasons that my relationship was so influenced by Hank, again, I was just old enough. I was 21 at the time. I was just mature enough to realize, okay, I have everything to gain from this relationship. And frankly, Hank doesn't have very much to gain at all. I have everything to learn. If he tells me to do something, it's very easy to just be off put, you know, oh, he's just being hard on me. Oh, he's just, you know, mm. but I just knew I'm like, ah, I think there's something behind it. 
and you can't, you don't always have time to ask the questions like, Hey, Hank, why are we doing this? You know, you, you don't ask those questions. <laughs> and so I just trusted it and it worked for me. Well, and I hear just, you know, our half hour conversation before I even hit record this morning was you talking about uh, what you're doing with your son and what great mentorship skills you learned from Hank. I don't know how much of that is informing your work with your son right now, but I mean, he was a natural developer Mm. of people. I mean, he knew how to break things down and how to show up and teach in a way that people would follow him. I really want you to talk about this project that you're working on. So, you know, from working on renovations and learning how to sweat pipes and do all of those things in the beginning. Now you've got this project that you're working on here in the area where we live in in Oak Cliff. And it's a different project than not only I've seen here in Oak Cliff, but in Mm -hmm. Dallas. Will you talk about that a little bit? And is it as different as I'm thinking it is. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's a 28 unit apartment. The original intent for the project was for it to be a car share, which is basically a car gets parked either at the site or it gets parked within 600 feet of the project and anybody can go and access it. Like enterprise has a car share program. These are sort of popping up. The other component to it was to have micro units. So smaller sized units. Of the 28 units, 17 of them are in the 400 square foot range. The reason for that uh, was a couple fold. One, affordability in our neighborhood. We used to be the affordable choice kind of in the downtown area. And in the last five years, and even going back as far as 10 years, rents have jumped, uh, prices have shot way up, and it's no longer uh, kind of the affordable choice to have great access to the highways in downtown. One of the quickest ways to affordability is actually shrinking the square footage. So a one-bedroom that is 400 square feet is not radically different than a one-bedroom apartment at 700 square feet, which would be maybe a more typical size. You still have the bedroom, one bath, living area, kitchen, and, but it, it decreases the rent price from maybe fourteen or fifteen down to a thousand. So that's and I think it's important to have an, a mix. Mm-hmm. Once you start looking in the the affordable housing laws of the state of Texas, it's kind of bleak. We're actually the only state that do, doesn't abide by certain laws. But yeah. so that's one thing that I thought would be you know, just bring bring value to the community and balance out the, the current mix of new construction projects that are being done now. The project's on a rail line. So there's a new uh, DART streetcar that's been put in, uh, comes right in front of the project. So it's got great connectivity to downtown. And um, one of the other aspects of the project is we're doing something on the interior that's kind of interesting. We're doing these built-in pegboard systems with furniture where the walls are clad with a pegboard and we're having CNC routed furniture, like end tables, Mm. bed frames, desks, and they're sort of component pieces. And you can move these anywhere you want on the wall. So you can come into the space and make it your own and it can change over time. Or if you have a guest and you want to reconfigure to add space for a bed, I thought that was something that would it's kind of an interesting intersection right now between the technologies that are of our day with CNC routing for people that don't know what that is. It's basically just imagine a four by eight flat sheet 
of plywood will go on a table and there is a drill bit router that's hooked up to a computer and you can bore or etch into this piece of plywood any way that the computer can tell it to. So the level of detail and the types of things that you can do has never been before. It's a sort of a new technology and sort of the ethos. And will the residents like order that? It'll come with a base level of sort of furnishings. Okay. And then I'm not sure. I haven't really worked it all the way through. I, I'm interested to see how it's received. It could be the type of thing where a tenant says, hey, this is awesome. I really need more of this components. I need more cabinets where we could just, you know, maybe they rent those for a couple bucks a month and then I pay for them and ha- send them over to the company that fabricates it. They make it, they ship it to us flat packed, just pop it together and, and then it's there. That is so brilliant. <laughs> I think it brings... You know, you're always, at least I am, I'm always trying to figure out ways to bring value to the tenant or the user or the buyer. Like what would they, what's useful for them? Can't really compete with a large developer who's providing a pool and a workout room and a business center and doing, you know, large square footage for an inexpensive price. I am a low production, high quality real estate developer. I provide, it's just kind of a unique living space that mm-hmm. you really wouldn't get anywhere else. The furniture system will be qu- quite unique. I haven't seen it done in an apartment anywhere. I saw it for the first time many, many years ago for a company that was doing it. And, and then a friend of mine, Jason Roberts, is doing a lot of things on CNC routers. And he's got some of same thing in his offices. And that's where I saw it tangibly for the first time. But I saw it many years ago. And I always thought... So it's just an interesting thing for me when I develop, I just, you know, some people say that great architecture is, is of its day. And I don't know where I kind of fall on this, but I feel like good real estate development is sort of one managing the complexity of the, of the day and age and the challenges of, you know, now one that comes to the forefront is sustainability, like just Mm -hmm. a more efficient use of resources. That's a challenge of our time. And how do our buildings and our built environment manage that, uh, that challenge and also technology. So how does technology intersect with the fabrication of interiors, you know, interior spaces and components and buildings. And my particular area of interest is in kind of the future of the built environment. It's just where I naturally gravitate towards, but it's also where I think um, I can offer the most. And when I say a real estate developer, I don't, I kind of see myself as a community developer. All my projects are within a few miles of my house. And I just say real estate developer because that's the easiest thing that kind of people can. People know what that is. Yeah, they know what that is. But I really just do projects in my community. And I realized very early on that there was a lot of people and organizations that were protecting the history. We have amazing historic and conservation districts. And there's a lot of, a lot of people that are doing awesome and necessary work preserving all of that. What I realized really quickly was that there wasn't people talking about the future, what the hmm. future of the built environment was going to be. And so where I have the most energy around is how do we create structures of their time that are celebrated 80 years from now or 100 years from now, the same way that we are celebrating the historic and conservation districts of the early 1900s. 
my concern is is that we're we're just dogmatically re- trying to preserve and recreate that and in a sort of a superficial way and we're not really creating great real estate of its time and i that's just where i felt like i had something to offer the conversation ultimately both are super super important and so most of the projects that i do now are new construction and i try to not lose the ethos uh, and what makes my community special, which is this sort of amazing sense of place. How can I do a new construction project that contributes to the sense of place, but is of its time? Well, and what I really appreciate about you as well, not only this very spacious perspective, when I hear you talk about building for the future, instead of just holding on to the past, I feel like I just turned and I saw something completely different. We've got a lot ahead of us. It's not just preserving what's in the past. So first of all, thank you for broadening my perspective there. Yep. Secondly, I have seen your properties and I've seen your work. You also have an ethos towards aesthetics. And so not only is the quality there, but the aesthetic is there as well. And I, you know, as I think about things like CNC routers and small places, I could go to cookie cutters and things that aren't beautiful, Mm. you know, but I know you and I know the work that you do and you would never create something that looked like a cracker box, Mm. you know, that didn't have beauty to it. So that's another thing that you're not talking about here, but I have experience in knowing about you. So you're balancing you're balancing a lot there mm. and it's a uh, it's complex to to bring all of that together into a in a, into a modern project yeah. that also brings value and supports the community and contributes to the sense of place. Yeah, it's really difficult. It's really actually difficult. And it's one of, you know, each one of my projects, I always try to have like one design question or one question that I'm trying to answer. And one of the previous recent projects a couple of years ago was, can we do new construction in the heart of the Bishop Arts District that has that aesthetic, you know, and doesn't depart from the history and adds to it? The challenge on it. I see both sides of it. I see so many, pro- yeah, the community can often get frustrated very quick because they see so much crap being built and they're rightfully should be disappointed. On the other side of that, I understand that once you go through the exercises of zoning code and building code and fire code and ADA compliance, often when you have a small infill site, the massing of the billing is pretty much dictated for you. And what can be done is very, very different than what could have been done when when these buildings were built, like a historic building was built 80 years ago. And I did a, the project I did in the Bishop Arts was called the Bishop Arts Lofts. I originally tried to model the building after something similar on the street. And a friend of mine, David Spence, had renovated, which was um, – an eightplex. It was four up, four down, and added interior stairwell. Well, when we got into the details of the zoning in the building code and the ADA compliance, you could never recreate that because it didn't meet the current laws. And so then the form of the building just took on something very different. 
Now, to the layman, they're looking at it going, this doesn't look like anything that we've seen before. This isn't in keeping with the neighborhood, This, which is a, is a reasonable question to ask. But what they don't know is they don't have the background of all these other critical components that make up, you know, what you end up seeing as the finished product. So there's that. I mean, there's just sort of the, the size and scale of things. The other thing that really affects the the size and scale is just the times that we live in. And we are a once suburban part of Dallas that is becoming urban. And we're in that transition and the buildings are getting bigger and they're getting denser and there's more people that are moving here. And one of the things that I often like point out, it's about context. You know, you're talking about spaciousness and, and having a bigger perspective. It's a, such a useful, it's such a useful thing to do. That's, that's so often missing from the conversation. People are just much more focused on sort of the here, the now, their property, their property rights, what they're going to have to live next to. To or understand really what's happening, you got to, you know, if you push out the context, let's just say 180 years. I mean, what was here before any of Dallas? It was Blackland Prairie. And there were some people that came here for economic opportunity and a better life. And they liked it and they told more people and they came and they liked it and they were successful (laughs) and there was more buildings and then there was more houses and then it sprawled and then the density creep, then they went vertical. That story is still happening. In 2017, we had 146,000 people that moved here more than any other city. And they come here because of a better life. They come here because of economic opportunity. All the research points to people migrating to urban areas because it's where jobs are, it's where entertainment is, and it's the highest probability to find a mate. And so when people say, do you think all the changes that are happening are good or bad? I don't see them as a good or bad thing. It's just an is thing. This mm-hmm. is what happens. You need to think of it as we're, this is the settlement patterns of human beings. I mean, you could go to the Nile and the Amazon and see high density along the river and then thousands and thousands of hectares of rainforest around them. But everybody congregates there because that's where the economic opportunities and business transact. And so it's not all that different. If you, if this is what our community and what Dallas is going through is not unique to Texas or the United States this is what happens on planet Earth. <laughs> this is the colonization of humans and the settlement patterns of humans. I think it also speaks just to change in general mm-hmm. and how we get stuck in the way things are and then look back into you know the good old days yeah. and we lose that perspective of how we contributed. Like I'm a new resident here in Oak Cliff mm-hmm. and I am really, really glad to be here, but I am sure that there are some people that wish I would go back to wherever I came from. Right. The irony of that is that many of those people live in a neighborhood that when this was farmland, there was massive battles in the community of people saying, well, how could you possibly divide these up (laughs) into R75? That is, these are farmland. You're going to kill all the birds and the trees and the biodiversity. And we don't want all those people living. Like it's a generic story. The fights that we fight now, it's a generic story that's been happening since the beginning of beginnings. So I don't try to get too caught up in all of that. You know, 
there is a tsunami of people that are coming to the numbers are staggering. And a few years ago, I saw a report that was done of all the infrastructure that was needed over the next 25 years. And it was just staggering 400,000 new single family homes, hundreds of thousands of units of apartments, like thousands, hundreds of schools, like just, you know, I don't know, my mind didn't really think of it in those terms. But when I heard the sheer numbers, when you have all these people moving here, the market's going to react and have to supply housing. So that's a tsunami of people. Like the metaphor that I use is if you're standing on the edge of the beach and you see a tsunami coming and you just sit there and say, I'm so mad how this is going to change everything. (laughs) It's not useful. It's, you know, a much more useful perspective is, okay, this is going to change everything, but how do we prepare for this? And I think our community here in Oak Cliff is, for the most part, done a really good job of preparing for it. We've we've got the conservation and historic districts that that we've been in place for a long time that provide protections. But we've also gone and create we've gone and done rezonings, large rezonings along Davis. The largest rezoning in the history of Dallas was 850 acres in the Oak Cliff Gateway. So we've done what we can to prepare. What we don't have and what's missing are on the ground projects of the type of development we want for our community. I mean, I think most people in the last five years have just, now that they see these massive institutional kind of projects, $50 million apartment mixed use now is visible. It's not, oh, this is coming in the future. I think most people realize, okay, things are changing. It's going to happen. What we don't have though is good examples of the style and type of development we would want that still keeps the sense of place, honors the history of our community, but also, you know, lays down something special that can be celebrated for many years to come. That's still the what if. We have some really great, I think, what I think are very, very uh, fortunate. We are very fortunate to have some of the developers in our community that are doing very large projects that, that are being built now that I think are as good as you can get in this day and age, given the the numbers and the economics and all the moving parts. So, Well, that's really great to hear. And again, I thank you to being one of those people that's pushing the envelope and holding our site in a different direction that has a lot more possibility than holding on to a past, digging heels in and kicking and screaming because things are changing because they are. Mm. And you know, so how do we want to shape that rather than react to it? Yes. Tell us the name of your project and when you think people will be start moving in. Yeah. So the project should be done by the fall. And the project is the name of the project is Bardo Loss. Love that. Yeah. And uh, look for it in the fall. If you're looking for a place in uh, North Oak Cliff, check it out. Might be a good fit for, for you. Christian, thank you so much. I I know you are super, super busy. And what folks don't know is that we rescheduled this a couple of times. And we're talking this morning on a Sunday morning, your, your boy is there waiting for you to get off the phone so he can (laughs) beat you in Uno. That's right. right. Thank you, Leanne. It was a real pleasure. I enjoy always talking with you. If you like what you heard today and the direction this podcast is pointed, subscribe to Rice Leaders Radio on iTunes, leave us a comment and a five-star rating. 
You can also check out the RISE Leaders website at www.rise-leaders.com to find the resources I pull from in my coaching and consulting work and that I find central to transformative leadership. If you're committed to leading with a clear vision and from core values and taking your team to the next level, then get in touch. You can reach me, Leanne Mallory, from my website. I'd be honored to hear from you. I appreciate you tuning in today and especially for being the type of person interested in learning more about how you can elevate your part of the world. Take good care.